morning, everybody. Welcome to Medina East. Uh, as Tracy said, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for those of you joining us online as well. You could be outside right now doing something because we have a, a rare, warm day. Uh, but you're here, so thanks for being here. Um, as we get started this morning, I, wanna, I want you guys to think about a question. And I want you to think back over your life, and I want you to think about what is the greatest trade that you've ever made? Right? What is the best trade that you have ever made? Maybe for some of you guys, your mind immediately goes to the stock market and to a transaction that you made at just the right time, right? Maybe you got out at, right th- at the right time or you, you put money in at just the right time. Maybe for some of you guys, you play fantasy football and so you go back to your fantasy league and you think of the trade you made with your buddy where you convinced him to do something that was really bad for him but good for you and that trade, like it won you the league that year, right? Maybe for some of you guys, this takes you back to your childhood, and it reminds you of uh, times where you were trading clothes or toys or candy or whatever it was with your friends. As I was thinking about this question in my own life, my mind immediately went to uh, a trade that I made with my buddy Jake when I was in uh, probably about middle school. And so um, we used to, when we were hanging out, we would go to uh, just go over to his house a bunch, and we'd play video games, and Normally, we were at his house because his TV, the TV in his basement was bigger than the TV in my basement. And so one day, I went over and found out that Jake actually, his parents actually had bought him a brand new TV. So he had a big TV, and it got even bigger. And so uh, it was a pretty exciting day as a middle schooler. So we're playing video games on this new TV. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, I'm getting ready to leave, and I noticed that Jake's old TV is kind of sitting in the corner. And I'm thinking, well, his old TV is bigger than my TV. So I said, hey, hey Jake, what, what are you going to do with that TV? Could you you want to give it to me? And Jake says, he looks at me and says, what are you going to give me for it? So I said, well, all right, I don't know. Let me, let me think about it. And so I ride my bike home. And right, I'm in middle school. I don't have a job, so I don't really have a whole lot to offer him. So I'm like looking for random things around my house that I can trade Jake with. And uh, can't really think of anything, can't find anything. And I think it was a couple days later. I'm, I just go into the pantry to get a snack. And all of a sudden, a light bulb goes off. And I think, every time Jake comes over, we had these cupcakes at our house growing up. And every time Jake comes over, Jake is always looking for one of these cupcakes. Like, he was just always asking for them. And I said, all right, I'm going to give it a shot. So I grab a, a, a brand new box of these cupcakes, get on my bike, ride over to Jake's house, knock on the door, see Jake and say, Jake, I got a trade offer for you. I'm going to offer you one of these boxes of cupcakes for that TV straight up. Jake looks at the cupcakes, looks at the TV, looks back at the cupcakes, and he says, you got yourself a deal, right? <laughs> So now, this is a true story. This is a picture of the actual TV I traded for that day. Some of you guys might remember these. Some of you over a certain age, right? This thing was encased in like solid wood. This was like solid oak. It weighs about 1,000 pounds. So this past week, I actually texted my dad. This is still in our basement, my parents' basement. Probably because it weighs about 1,000 pounds and none of us, none of us want to move it. So, but uh, that day, I traded a box of cupcakes for this beauty and... Uh, I think it's one of the best trades ever made. So, uh, Now, here's, here's the deal. Here's why we're talking about this. So the reality is anytime you make a trade, it costs you something, right? In every trade, there is something that you have to give up. And even if you don't realize it, we actually make hundreds of these decisions every day, right? It's just, it's part of life. And so every day we trade money for goods and services, Maybe we trade a few extra hours of sleep to stay up late and watch a show or a game. Maybe some of you guys this past week, you traded a few extra calories to eat that donut that was sitting in the workroom. And in all of those moments, whether they're big moments or small moments, our brains, they are evaluating the cost of each decision, and they're helping us determine, is this a trade that I'm willing to make? 
And so right now we find ourselves in a series called The Way of Jesus, and we're working our way through the book of Luke. And what we're going to find in the passage that we look at today is that Jesus is going to turn and he's going to look at a crowd of people, and he's going to offer them a high-stakes trade. He is going to put in front of them a choice with a hefty price tag, and he's going to ask them to count the cost and to consider, is this a trade you are willing to make? So if you guys have a Bible with you, I want you to join me in Luke 14. If you don't have one or if you're a guest with us, there's uh, Bibles under the seats in front of you. We're going to be on page 848. And if you don't own a Bible or you would like that Bible, you can feel free just to take that home with you and consider that a gift from us. And so Luke 14, starting in verse 25, we read this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Not about you guys, but that at first glance, that's a pretty shocking statement, right? I think some of you guys read that, and you might even take it a step further, and you would say, Kevin, that is, that is a disturbing statement, right? Like, why, why in the world would Jesus say such a thing? Why would he say that if I want to be his disciple, that I have to hate my parents and hate my spouse and hate my children, right? That, that doesn't seem to make any sense. I like how uh, one guy put it by the name of N.T. Wright. He said it like this. He said, imagine a politician standing on a soapbox addressing a crowd If you're going to vote for me, he says, you're voting to lose your homes and your families. You're asking for higher taxes and lower wages. You're deciding in favor of losing all that you love best. So come on, who's on my side? The crowd wouldn't even bother heckling him or throwing rotten tomatoes at him. They would just be puzzled. Why on earth would anyone try and advertise themselves in that way? Right? So not only is this probably an offensive statement to a lot of us, it seems like it's a terrible way to market yourself, right? If your goal is to get followers, why would you say something like this? And then I think in addition to all of that, it seems that this, these words by Jesus, they seem to contradict so many other biblical teachings that would teach you to love and care for your family, right? So just a couple of quick examples, right? Exodus 20 tells us to honor your father and mother. It didn't say hate your father and mother. It says honor them. Ephesians 5 tells husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. 1 Timothy 5.8 says anyone who does not pr- provide for their relatives, especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Right? And again, these verses, they don't say to hate your families. They say rather we should be loving and caring for our families. Right? And so given all of this, right, this, this passage just seems off. Like what, what is Jesus actually saying here? And so the good news is, is that I study this passage, I don't think he's telling us to actually hate our families. If you dive into the languages a little bit, one of the things you find is that the word that Jesus uses here for hate is the word missio, and it means hate, but it also means to love less. And so while there are certain circumstances where it does and is used to mean hate, it is also a way to express that in comparison to something else, you love this thing less. Another example of this that we find in Scripture, this type of thinking, you find it in Romans chapter 9. You may have heard this verse before. It says this, 
It says, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that word hate is the exact same word that Jesus uses in Luke 14. And as you dive into this passage, what you find is that Paul is actually quoting another passage from the Old Testament, from the book of Malachi, when there was a time where God had to make a choice. And so there were two brothers, there was Jacob and Esau, and God knew that the nation of Israel, they were only going to come through one of those family lines. He couldn't come through both, and so God had to make a choice. And even though Esau was the older brother, even though he was the one who had the birthright, God chose Jacob. Now, does this mean that God literally hated Esau? I don't think that's what it means. I think it means he made a choice. I think it means that he chose to elevate one brother over the other. And the word that is used for hate in the, in the passage in Malachi, it's very similar to the word that Jesus and Paul uses in the New Testament. And again, it can mean hate or scorn, or it could mean to decrease in status. Right? And so even though Esau was the older brother, God chose Jacob, and by doing so, he decreased Esau's status. And in the same way, every single commentator I studied agreed, this is what Jesus is saying in Luke 14. He is saying that if we want to be his disciples, we need to make sure that he has priority and that his status is elevated above everything else in our lives. That when we consider all the things that have influence in our lives or vie for our attention or call for our loyalty, that the way of Jesus and the rule of Jesus, that it will have complete and total priority over everything else, including even our own families. Now, in Jesus' day, these words would have had some very literal implications. If you were in the first century in Eastern culture, one of the highest values you would have had was that of family. Even today, if you travel to an Eastern culture or an Eastern way of thinking, you realize how quickly, or quickly, you quickly realize how much value they put on loyalty to family and respecting their family and honoring their family name. And you think the reality is Jesus knew when he came on the, on the scene and he was calling, he was calling people to, to follow him that, that families would be divided over that, right? He knew that he was gonna mess with that world a little bit. I've mentioned before that uh, back when I was in seminary, I got to go on a mission trip to, uh, to China. And as part of that trip, one of the stories that has just always stuck with me was when we were there, uh, one, of the, one of the students on our team got to have a conversation with a young girl who was probably about 20 who was exploring Christianity. And so as he, as he started this conversation with her and is engaging with her, he found out that she, she believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And she believed that he had died on the cross, and she even believed that, he, that she was in need of, of a savior, right? She believed all of those things, and yet, she was just considering Christianity. And so the student who was on the trip, he leaned in, he says, hey, if you believe all of these things, why, why are you just considering this? Like, why, why haven't you made this decision? And I'll never forget the response she gave him. She said, you don't understand. If I choose to follow Jesus, my family is going to disown me. She said, if I choose to follow Jesus, my family, they will cut me off. They will never speak to me again. I literally, I might not have a place to sleep tomorrow night. She went on to, to tell him that she also understood that if, if I choose to follow Jesus, that means I can only marry someone who is a follower of Jesus. But the problem was she was living in this obscure little village kind of in the middle of nowhere and she didn't know other followers of Jesus. 
And so in her mind, she knew if I make this decision, I might be making the decision to end up single for the rest of my life. And in that little village, to be a single girl who was cut off from her family was an incredibly vulnerable place to be. And so for this girl to follow Jesus, there were some massive implications for her. The reason she was hesitating, it was not theological, but rather it was deeply personal. She understood the implications of this decision, and I think she was rightly and wisely counting the cost, right? She was trying to decide, is this a trade that I'm willing to make? And I think this is exactly what Jesus is asking the crowds to do in our passage. And we know this not just because of what he's already said, but because of what he says next. G goes on to give us two examples that reinforce this idea. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And so in both of these examples, what Jesus is doing is he is asking his listeners to count the cost. In the first example, Jesus talks about someone who starts to build a tower only to realize partway through he doesn't have the resources or the funds to finish it. As I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think of a man named Rex Humbard. I don't know how many of you guys know who he is. If you've never heard of Rex Humbard before, he was a Pentecostal preacher who lived in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And he is basically uh, famously known as being the father of televangelism, right? So he was kind of the guy who put those two worlds together. And he was like world-renowned. And like he, he had somewhere, I think, around 20 million followers worldwide. So super well-known guy. And one of the interesting facts about them is that his world headquarters was actually in Akron, Ohio, of all places. And so in 1958, he built something that was called the Cathedral of Tomorrow. And in 1971, Rex had a grand idea to build this. It was a 750-foot tower uh, with a revolving restaurant at the top of it. But just like in Jesus' parable, a couple months into this project, Rex ran into financial problems, and he was unable to complete the tower. And so he started building this thing. This is a real thing. He started building this in Cuyahoga Falls. You could go there today. It's still there today. Uh, But instead of looking like this, it currently looks like this, right? And if you've ever been to Cuyahoga Falls, maybe you've seen this thing. Maybe you're like, what is that? Why is that there? Now you know, right? You can see this beauty for miles away. It is a giant eyesore, and there are a lot of nicknames for this thing, but here's one of the nicknames, one of the things they call this thing. They call it Humbard's Folly, right? This once grand idea is now a monument to his failure, and it's currently being used as a cell phone tower. Some guy bought this thing for 30 grand, and he's renting it out to one of the major carriers, right? And this is exactly what Jesus is teaching us. He says, for if you lay the foundation and you are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it, they will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able 
to finish. In the second example, Jesus uses the analogy of war, which would have been all too familiar to an audience who was living in the shadow of Rome. He says, any king who's worth his salt would first consider if he has enough troops to win the battle. And when would he make this decision? When would he consider this? It's not during the battle. It's not after the battle, right? You would, you would think this through before the battle. And if the king concludes he can't win the battle, instead of sending in his army, he would try and seek a peace treaty. And in both of these examples, the point is the same. Before you make a major decision, you would be wise to count the cost and to consider if you have what it takes to see this thing through. If you can't finish the project, it would be foolish to build two-thirds of a building. If you know you're going to lose the battle, it would be foolish to send your men in only to die. And Jesus says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. He says, in the same way, if you want to be my disciple, you need to first consider and count the cost to see if you are willing and able to see this thing through. You need to consider if you are willing to put me, me ahead of not just some things, but ahead of everything. If you're willing to give up or lay aside everything that you have for my kingdom. Now, as we start considering some of Jesus' words, I think it's also important to remember who specifically Jesus is talking to in this moment. So if we go back to the start of the passage, we kind of skipped over this part, but it starts by saying this. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said. Right, and so often we're reading stories where Jesus is interacting with his disciples, but this, this situation is a little bit different. Right, he's talking to the crowds. And I think that's important to remember because if, if you remember the disciples, they've already left everything to follow Jesus, right? Like he called them, they literally, like they, they quit their jobs, they dropped their nets, they left their homes, they left their hometown, they literally left everything. They've already done this. And so Luke starts this passage and he wants us to know this audience is different. And so when Luke says crowds, the question is, what does he mean by that? Right? Why is it so important for Luke to tell us that he is speaking to the crowds in this moment? And while I don't, I don't know that we can figure out exactly for sure why, I think that we can make some educated guesses, uh, both based on the context of the passage and based on what we know about crowds today, right? Because there are still lots of things in our world where you get crowds to follow them. And so why are the people in this crowd following Jesus in the first place? So here's some potential options, right? So perhaps they're following Jesus because he is the new thing, right? That's still true today. Anytime someone new shows up on the scene, it's just going to get a crowd. There's an initial push. This is interesting. I haven't really, this is, it's just a new thing. And so new things, they just tend to attract crowds. Perhaps they're following Jesus because, uh, because they want to be part of the crowd, right? So there's a crowd that is already doing this, and maybe they feel left out. They're like, everyone's over there. What's going on? And so maybe they want to just be part of the crowd. Maybe they feel like they're missing out. But again, same thing is true today. Some people follow the crowd because they want to be part of the crowd. There's another one. Maybe they just, maybe they just enjoy his teaching. They just enjoy listening to him. He, he's teaching with a fresh perspective. We've heard over and over throughout the book of Luke, it says that he was someone who taught with authority, not like their teachers of the law. So we know there was something different about his way of teaching that, that drew people in. 
Here's another possible reason. Perhaps it's because they want to see a miracle, right? They just, they just want to see something cool. Jesus obviously did a whole lot of things that you didn't see every day, and people were interested in that. If I told you there was someone right now in downtown Medina Square doing some of the things that Jesus did, some of you would probably look at your, whoever you came with, you'd say, hey, after service, we should go check that out. Like, I'd be interested in seeing some of that, right? It's just something cool is happening, and they want to go see it. And then perhaps probably because of this too, uh, because of what he can do for them. Right, often you get a crowd because they are there in it for something they can get out of it. Right, we know that Jesus fed people. He gave out free food to people. We know that he healed lots of people. Maybe they're trying to get one of their friends healed. We also know that a lot of them had this misunderstanding. They thought Jesus was gonna be the one who physically freed them from the oppression of Rome. And so perhaps they're following him because of what he can do for them. I love how one commentator put it. He said it like this. He said, often in the Lucan account, crowds are presented as pools of neutral persons from whom Jesus might draw disciples. And this is clearly the case here. In light of Jesus' message in chapter 13, 26, and 27, however, one should not immediately be overly optimistic about the realization of their potential as disciples. Many, according to Jesus, will claim to have associated themselves with Jesus' teaching, both at the table and on the road, but their fundamental allegiances will not have been altered. Right? These are people who are claiming to follow Jesus and on some level are physically following Jesus, but their fundamental allegiances, their loyalties, their commitments, they have not changed and they have not been altered. So generally speaking, who are the crowds? The crowds are fair-weather fans who have jumped on the Jesus bandwagon because they think that there is some, some way this is going to benefit them. But the moment things get hard, the moment it starts to cost them something, there's a good chance that they're going to bail. And this is not a new idea that Jesus is teaching. This is an idea that we have found, and it's a theme that has been traced throughout the book of Luke. We see this over and over and over, even in the passage immediately before this. If you're reading along with us, in the passage right before this one, Jesus tells the parable of the great banquet, right? In this parable, he is inviting people in left and right, and they're interested, and they kind of want to come, but then one by one, they start coming up with excuses because there's something else that they value more. And so again, everyone in the crowd, they're all unique, and they're all different, but there is also a reason they are still part of the crowd, and they're not a disciple, right? For most of them, there is something that they are still holding on to, something they're unwilling to part with, something that still holds their ultimate allegiance. And Jesus looks at the crowd and says, if you are not willing to give up everything, you cannot be my disciple, and then Jesus ends this section in verses 34 and 35 talking about salt. Now, depending on which translation you're reading from, some of your Bibles will lump that together. They'll put it all under the same heading, and some of those will kind of separate it as a separate thing. I actually think that they do belong together. I think that they do fit together. But for time's sake, we're going to kind of skip over those last two verses. And what I want to do is I want to point you guys back to a series that we did last May that specifically talks about salt and light. And obviously, the start of the series, you can go back and you can look at all of the things that Jesus is kind of trying to present and teach when he talks about salt. But I think that they are linked together, and I think there is a missional component 
to this passage that Jesus is trying to get, get to. So if you want more, again, if you want more, more insights into that, I'd encourage you to go back to the series we did last May. But what I love about what Jesus is doing here in Luke 14 is that most people we encounter in this world, they're gonna do the exact opposite. Most people try to get you to sign up for something and then they like show you the fine print later. Most people, they make you commit to it first, right? Sign on the dotted line here. And then they like, they blindside you with, ah, here's the catch. Tricked you, gotcha, right? Jesus is not like that. Jesus is looking straight at the crowds, people who are deciding if they want to follow him or not. And he is telling them up front, let's just get things straight right now. If you want to be my disciple, it's going to cost you everything. That's the deal. Take it or leave it. And I don't think Jesus is trying to scare people away. I think rather he is trying to prepare them for the journey that's ahead. I think he knows what exactly what will be asked of them. And he says this precisely because he wants them to succeed. He doesn't want them to be like the builder who couldn't finish. He doesn't want them to be like the the general who send in his troops only to lose them. I think he says what he says precisely because he wants them and he wants us to finish the race. And so as we consider how this passage applies to us today, let me just start by acknowledging this is a really hard teaching, right? It's hard. Jesus is asking us to count the cost And then he tells us the cost is literally everything that we have. If you want to follow me, he says, you need to lay everything on the table. And I think for many of us, if we're honest, we're not sure if it's worth it. I don't think that we would want to say that out loud or we want to admit that, but I think that there's part of us, we read words like this and and we, we hesitate. And so given the weight of what Jesus has just said, I, I want to leave you guys with three questions that I think are worth considering this week. Three things that I think all of us just need to reflect on. Here's the first one. The first one is, are you part of the crowd or are you a disciple? Are you part of the crowd or are you a disciple? And I want to caution you not to dismiss this question too quickly. Because in every single church, including this one, It is full of people who are part of the crowd. And that is not meant to be an insult to anyone. Rather, I think it is a description of where some people are currently at in their journey. Because remember, the crowds are not anti-church or anti-God people, right? If they were that, they wouldn't be in the crowd. They're in the crowd specifically because they are interested in Jesus, The crowd is full of people who like Jesus and are fans of Jesus, and to some extent, they're already even following Jesus. But as we discussed earlier, the reason they are still part of the crowd is because they haven't altered their allegiances yet, right? Their loyalties and their commitments, those have not really changed. The reason they are still part of the crowd is because they want all of the benefits of following Jesus, but they want none of the cost. Right, Jesus, I want you to give me everything you can, but I don't, I don't really want to 
I don't really want it to cost me anything. I don't really want to have to give anything back. Can you just, can you just keep giving me stuff? And so the people in the crowd, they have Jesus as a priority in their life. They do. It's just not the top one. Right, he's one of many priorities and there's often a lot of other things that are kind of crowding him out and like, oh yes, I do want to come to that, but I got this thing, right? And, and Jesus has somehow moved down the ranks a little bit. And I'll be honest, I look at this list and there are things on there, I still think that way sometimes. I don't want to think that I'm part of the crowd, but there are days where my mind goes in that direction, so I want to caution you not to dismiss this question too quickly. Are you part of the crowd or are you a disciple? Here's the second one. What are the things that compete for your allegiances? Right? What are the things that, that vie for that top spot in your life? So for the majority of the people following Jesus that day, it was probably a family allegiance. I think that is precisely why Jesus chose the words that he did. I think he wanted to lean into the thing that mattered most to them. Like I think he was literally looking for the pressure point. I think this is also why later in the Gospel of Luke, you read of this encounter he had with a rich young man, a rich young ruler, and he asked this guy to give away all of his money, but he says nothing to him about his family. Because it's not about the money or the family, right? It's about what is that thing. For him, it wasn't his family, but it was his money that held his ultimate allegiance. And so the question is, what are the things that compete for your allegiances? Because we all have them, and it's all probably a little bit different, right? There's going to be some similarities, but we're all a little bit different in this. So for some of you guys, it, just like the rich young ruler, it might be your money, Right, Tony talked about this a couple weeks ago and just the power and the draw and the pull that can have on us. For others of you, maybe it's your career. God, I'll do anything you want. I'll, I'll give you anything. I'll go anywhere, but don't mess with my career. I got plans. I have visions of where this is going and, it, and nothing is allowed to interrupt that. I suspect for a lot of you here, uh, like me, it might be your kids. Right, so back um, before I came on staff here, I was working at another church and leading a life group, and there was a, there was a lady who was part of our life group, and she was faithfully coming every single week uh, and just really involved and engaged, and then one day she just, she just like disappeared. She just stopped coming. And it was probably two, three months. We couldn't get a hold of her. We had no idea what happened, and uh, one day she, she showed up back at church, and so we're like, hey, how are you doing? Are you okay? Like, what? What's going on? And she just said, yeah, I'm sorry, I haven't, I haven't been in a group in a while. It's my son, he, he, he joined the swim team. And I said, oh, she's like, it just, it's, we, just, we just can't really, we can't really do the thing on Wednesday nights anymore. And so I said, well, well that's okay. Like, if you want to jump into another group, we won't be offended. We just want you to be connected to people. We got groups all kinds of nights. And she said, well, now you don't understand. Swim practice is pretty much every night. And then the meets are, we're often traveling for them, and they're on, they're on Sunday mornings and Saturdays, and we just wouldn't have time for a lot anymore. And I knew her well enough that I leaned a little bit, and I said, I said, so are you telling me you think that swim team is greatly hindering you and your family's ability to follow Jesus? And without hesitation, she's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And what I didn't say, but what I wish I had said looking back was, 
Okay, so what are you gonna, what are you gonna do about that? Right, somewhere along the way, she took a good thing, wanting to love her kids and keep her kids happy and keep them involved in sports, and sports aren't a bad thing. I grew up doing sports all the time. Like, none of that. She took a good thing, and she allowed it to become the ultimate thing. And I think Jesus would say again, that that's great, but your ultimate call, it's not to raise the next Olympic swimmer or to entertain your kid or to just get him out of that way. Right? Your ultimate goal is to be a disciple and to make disciples, all right? And so some of her, her priorities, they just got a little bit, a little bit out of alignment. For some of us, it's gonna be our singleness, right? We just don't wanna be single, and so we have this thing. This is my goal in my life. This is what my life is about, and Jesus, you can have anything, but I have plans for that area. I think this list could go on with the way we use our time, our political preferences. There's a landmine, but it is true, do not let that become the thing, right? Our comfort, this could go on and on and on. But here's the deal. Regardless of what it is for you, and maybe it's several of those things, Jesus says, if you're not willing to give that up, if you are not willing to elevate me above that thing, you cannot be my disciple, So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna invite the band back up. We have one more question, and this is obviously, this is the conclusion. This is the, this is the question that I think this passage forces us to ask. And the question is this. Is this a trade that you are willing to make? Right? Ultimately, Jesus is saying, will you give up everything to be my disciple? That's the trade that he is offering us. And the reality is we don't normally make trades that we don't think are worth it. We only make trades when we are convinced what we are getting is far more valuable than what we are giving up. And so why in the world would we give up everything to be Jesus' disciple? Well, because Jesus teaches us that when you give up everything for him, you actually get far more than you could ever imagine. Gospel of Matthew puts it like this. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Right, as you consider this trade that Jesus is offering you, if you only think about the things that he is asking you to give up, you will never make this trade. Because from a worldly perspective, it doesn't make any sense. You will only be willing to make this trade if you can see and start to understand the value of what you're getting in return. And Jesus says, when you rightly understand the value of my kingdom, when you rightly understand what you will be getting in return, you'll start to see this is not a trade you have to make, this is a trade you get to make, that you will run to make, right? It says, in his joy. Who in the world would be joyful about getting rid of all that they have? Someone who knows that what they're getting in return is exponentially more valuable. Right? He went in his joy because he knew what he was getting, because he knew he was about to make the best trade of his life. 
But the question is, is this a trade that you are willing to make? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much uh, for being the God that you are, for being good and for loving us. God, we also want to recognize that these words, these that you have put before us, they are hard. You ask a whole lot, God. But God, we know that you're good. We trust you and we love you. And we know that you say that we're getting, and what we get in return in you is more than we could ever imagine. So God, I pray right now for all of us in the room, wherever we're at, whether we're followers of Jesus uh, or whether we're just exploring, that you would meet us there, that you would help us evaluate and rightly count the cost, that you would help us think through the things that are in our life that you have given us and blessed us with, and you would help us process through if we would be willing to give all of that up to follow you. God, I pray that you would be gracious with us in the moments when we hesitate and when we struggle to see this well. We ask for your help, God. We love you. We thank you. It's in your son's name. Amen.